Welcome to the Best Ever You Show with your host, Elizabeth Hamilton Garino, CEO and founder of the Best Ever You Network, helping you live your life to the fullest. How? Real people, including celebrities, real advice, real places, products, and businesses, real life stories. It's all right here for you with this radio show, printed magazine, websites, community, and more. Remember to visit us online, too, at besteveryou.com. And now here's your host, CEO and founder of the Best Ever You Network, Elizabeth Hamilton Garino. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to the Best Ever You Show. That all sounds so fancy-schmancy. And in reality, I sit in my house, in my office, with my hair on top of my head and my sweats on and do this radio show. And it's so much fun. It's uh, It's just been a blast. And with, uh, with having four boys who were a lot younger when I started this back it up 10 years or so ago, and now they're all in college or having, you know, graduated college with jobs and all that stuff. But this has just been such a great way to keep a, a foot in the working door, and it's just turned into such fun, especially when we have guests on like we have today. We have Dean Lunt. He's the founder of Island Port Press here in Maine. And um, boy, has he launched a lot of cool author careers, including his own. He's got a couple books that he's written and does this awesome uh, magazine you see every once in a while that's in the Portland Press Herald. He can tell us all about that. Um, But Dean, welcome to Best Ever You. It's been a long time trying to get you on this show. (laughs) How are you? Hi, Elizabeth. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Thank you. Um, gosh, you know, I think I want to tell everybody right off the bat, the website, um, because people like to follow along on the computer. So it's islandportpress.com if you want to go there and, um, learn much more about, um, Dean's company than we could probably cover in this hour. That's the website there. And Dean, are you active? I see on Facebook, um, Island Port Press on Facebook. Are you active on Twitter and LinkedIn as well, or is there a certain social media you prefer people to contact you through? Uh, the, the company is pretty active on Island um, Facebook and Instagram. Okay. Twitter, Instagram. we have a very small presence. We haven't really figured out Twitter yet, and we do have a LinkedIn page that's that's there. But mostly Facebook and Instagram is what okay. we found. We get the most interaction with. You can just search Island Port Press and either one of those. Yeah, I am. Um, yeah, I live on Twitter, so that's inter- So together we will complement the the downloads of this show. <laughs> but um, yeah, we're you know I always say best ever you is here to raise awareness, and um, we're here to inspire you to embrace the inner love gifts and talents that create the essence of who you really are, and to challenge you to share this uniqueness with the world. Um, when you're listening to the Best Ever You Show or you're on the best on besteveryou.com, it's a trusted place to discover and rediscover your authentic best self, to create a vision and practice that vision, and to really live rooted in gratitude where each moment of your life matters. And um, one of the reasons why I love having you here with me, Dean, is because so many people dream of being authors. Do you want to take that and run with it? <laughs> Just in that statement. <laughs> so many people. Really uh, being, I can't even imagine what your inbox must look like on certain days. <laughs> uh, really, we get, we're get we a small company. We do 15 to 20 books a year typically. Uh, and we probably get, at this point, over 500 to 600 unsolicited manuscripts a year. Again, we're small. Uh, a range of kids' books, adult books. But yeah, everybody has an idea, everybody wants to be published, everybody has a kid's story, so it's, it's quite remarkable. And we do get to publish some of those. Uh, again, we probably pick, if we get 100, we may pick one of those to publish and work with the author. And it's, it's, it's a lot of fun to take. We get a lot, since we're small and in Maine, we get a lot of first-time authors. You know, we just published a book this summer with a woman who's 90 years old writing about her life, and it's just it's been great to get that book out there. It's called Whatever It Takes. Uh, get that book out there. See how, how excited she is, and she's just loving going to historical societies and talking about her life. It's it's a lot of fun that way too. Well, I, I love that too because um, you know I was just I was just thinking about this at my own age. We were talking about you know I turned fifty and 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 a lot of people are starting welcome fifty. To the club. It seems that I know. Yeah, welcome to the club. You get welcome to the club. But you can do anything at any age. I mean, ninety years old and writing a book 
and having a book published, that just must be a lifetime dream come true. Yeah, and this woman, Mae Davidson, she was in Round Pond. She had an amazing life with her husband, worked really hard her whole life, was a chicken farmer, was a sheep farmer, ran a sawmill for lobster boat, uh, lobster trap parts, uh, was a long-haul trucker, did all that stuff and worked every day. Eventually, she and her husband, uh, Jim, invented the main boy bell, which is a uh, like a chime that mimics the sound of the bellboys in Maine. And and then she was able to retire because that was so successful. And now she's written a book about that whole that whole life. And you know she's been so excited. It's been so much fun to work with her. But those are the kind of people, at a small company in Maine, we we get to work with. Many many large publishing houses don't accept unagented manuscripts. So you have to have an agent. You have to go through all this with a lot of people, not everyone, but all the big ones. So we're sort of rooting around all corners of the state trying to find those voices. And those people might not otherwise be heard, so that's part of not, not not everyone's like that, but a good part of them are like that. So it's fun. Well, you you seem to me, and and please correct me if I'm wrong, um, but you seem so interested in history, and your own history is really interesting to me. Um, I know our we're fan. Sorry, (laughs) we're members of the Mayflower (laughs) Society, (laughs) and um, it's been really interesting to research our own history, like on Ancestry.com and so forth. But you're an eight. Talk to me about the history of you and your family because it's fascinating. When I hear eighth generation, that's that's pretty cool. (laughs) Especially not being from Maine myself, I love to to learn. Uh, Yeah, my ancestors. You know, probably a typical story for many New Englanders. We came over from England. The Lunts came from England in the 1600s. Got to Maine in the 1700s. One of my direct ancestors fought in this Revolutionary War from from Maine, and then eventually, in the early uh, late 1700s, made our way to Mount Desert Island. So my family was among the first settlers of MDI, and then around late 1700s, early 1800s. They moved out to this little island called Frenchboro. It was Long Island, uh, actually named the island back then, uh, and became fishermen. So my family's been on this little island, eight miles at sea, for uh, you know since since 1800. And I grew up there. Population when I was growing up was about 50 people. <laughs> I went to yeah. a little 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 one room school there. Uh, one point we had ten. One point we had six kids. And then when I got to seventh grade. I was the only student in the school, so we actually wow. shut the school building down, and I had I went to school at the teacher's kitchen table for many months until we moved over to Tremont. But yeah, I think all that growing up and being in Maine so long, and, and my grandmother was an amateur historian, and I really loved it. Uh, I've sort of always had that sort of interest in the history of Maine and the culture of Maine and the people of Maine, and being from eastern Maine. I live in southern Maine now, but being from eastern Maine, you know, in that area always fascinates me as well. In northern Maine, sort of the other Maine, some people call it, but it's it's, yeah, it's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think anytime you can, you can go ahead. No, go ahead. I, I think anytime you can educate us about Maine, it's like, you, I, you know, for example, just me, I moved here and I moved here 15 years ago, and still am learning about Maine. It's it's uh, there's so much. History here. Maine is, well, Maine is a big state. I mean, to go from here to Caribou, where one of our staff members works, Shannon, it's a six-hour drive. You could be you go six hours the other way, you're past New York City, so it's that big, and very diverse culturally, from the potato farmers and the French Canadians in the north, the lobster fishermen, to the mill workers, the shoe factory workers over the years, to sort of the city of, of Portland, and it's very. Very different, very beautiful. Um, but I know people lived here their whole lives and haven't gotten past Bangor or, you know, up into Jackman or Allagash and those areas. And they're very worth exploring. And again, there's many, many stories out there, whether from from all those years and all those those cultures. And many of the cultures, one reason I'm so into this right now and so important is a lot of these cultures are fading. You know, yeah. the the woods culture, the lumberman culture. Is really vanishing, you know. Potato fields are still there, but it's mostly corporate. You know, uh, the fishing industry is mostly now reduced to 
lobster fishing. Most of the other fisheries are gone. Um, so we're trying to capture those people and that way of life and farms and as well as the city and uh, the, the modern era too. But there's just a lot out there. And people who come to Maine, like you've moved to Maine, love Maine. Many states, I don't think you could do what we do because people don't seem to care about the culture or the heritage of the state. But in Maine, yeah. people move here or visit here. It seems like they just want to absorb it, so they buy the books. There's so many magazines about Maine. You know, other states have none. We have, I don't know, half a dozen or more. So <laughs> it's, uh, it allows us to do what we're doing. You can do it in Texas. You can do it in Maine. You can do it in a few places, but Maine has that sort of special feel about it, and people seem to love it when they get here. Well, you know, the one thing I've, I've noticed is that people, um, if you let them, people re- will really embrace you and embrace um, your ideas, your achievements, your, I mean, just anything. And just for example, in the way the Portland Press Herald covers high school sports, uh, my jaw mm-hmm. drops. I mean, I've never seen that before. Any, you know, California or Minnesota or even Iowa where I live, I have never seen an entire state embrace just about every single high school sport in that kind of depth and coverage. It's amazing. Yeah, it's really statewide. The Press Herald does a great job. Bangor Daily News oh, does a great job amazing. Of, of covering around sports. Part of it, I think, is people have been in Maine a long time. Um, they identify with the high school, the areas they've lived in. They've gone to high schools three generations ago, so they still get into it. I mean, basketball, if you've been to the basketball tournament, it's one of the great sporting events ever to go to the Maine high school basketball tournaments and see all those teams and all those people and all that history uh, play out. Yeah, we oh, I went, we went there for Falmouth, I think. Did we go there for Falmouth? Yeah. I think we did. Yeah. <laughs> what were you going to say? Falmouth yeah, no, I, mean, I remember being at all like, this is high school basketball. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, but keep on. What were you going to say? Yeah, the high school basketball tournament, that's, that's busy. Yeah, well, I mean, in, in Bangor, oh, I grew up in eastern Maine, the Bangor Auditorium would just, you know, sell a place out. Thousands for every game would, would come there. Yeah. It was a huge, huge deal. Um, I think that was all sports. People just, when they move back to Maine, they live in Maine, they identify with the community, and the high school is sort of the most visible part of that community. So they really, really embrace it. Yeah. They get pretty, you know, pretty intense, too. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, you I know, know. You take the good with the bad, I guess. You know. <laughs> uh, well, I just remember being sort of taken through the process with our son who played baseball for Falmouth. He was a lefty pitcher for Falmouth. And I, yeah. I just couldn't believe the amount of people that would show up for the um, quarterfinals and the semifinals and the state, you know, all those things. I just, I'm like, this is bigger than college. There were more people there than some college games that I've seen. And oh, I think it really I think supported. If you're a high school, yeah. If you're a high school athlete in Maine and, and a big sport, you you're going to have more people in attendance if you go to Division three school or something like that. Yeah. They're really into it. Or if you're playing a high school sport, you're also in a club sport, you know, you'll get 10 people to a club game, parents, and <laughs> the high school games you'll get hundreds, thousands so, to these games. Yeah. yeah. It, Thanks for that. Because, yeah, no, I, well, I love having, having somebody from Maine on here who knows all this stuff because, you know, it, it confirms some of my suspicions and, and thinking. <laughs> but, um, Okay, so let's, when, I, when, let's I, when I was in high school, when I was in high school, our games were on the radio. We had a regular radio network. They yeah. were all broadcasts. <laughs> I know. I'm just like you got to be kidding me. Yeah, no, they they built. I mean, they had video going of games at the high school level. I was just stunned at the whole production of everything, and then the newspaper follow up. But just I'm, I think it's one of the neatest things I've seen, and it continues. And it's just getting better and better and better, and not in a way that's obnoxious either. It's just super supportive of the children. And I'm just, yeah, I remain completely impressed by that. So, um, and, and, it build, we, and it builds community. So. Yeah, it's, it's just a beautiful process. So, and I, I always, I know it's kind of a weird segue, but I always think that about your company too. It just does things so supportive of Maine. Like when I landed here, I remember, um, I was I was Mrs. Maine in uh, I don't even know what year it was now. It was 2006, <laughs> and I found you. I'm like, oh, this is neat. They, you know, we have a, a publisher here in Maine, and this is a great book. And you actually donated like a hundred copies of John McDonald's book 
to everybody at the national level who was in the pageant with me. It was my gift I took with me from Maine to give out to all the other contestants and, and the people who were running um, the pageant. So that was super cool of you. And I, don't, I didn't even know you, and I called you. I'm like, would you help me? <laughs> and um, that's such a good book. Um, do you want to talk about John? Because he's got to be a favorite of yours. It's awesome. Well, yeah, John McDonald. Uh, so we published our first book in 2000, which was – my book, Hauling by Hand, which is a history of Frenchboro. Then as soon as we published one book, people start – as you mentioned earlier, people started coming to us. I have a book. I have a book. I have a book. <laughs> yeah. said, All right. Maybe we're going to be a publisher. Um, and so one of the earliest people was John McDonald, who's a main storyteller. Uh, he's on WGAN radio every weekend mornings, uh, and he had a collection of columns, which we ended up calling A Moose and a Lobster Walk into a Bar. Uh, we had very little money at the time, so we couldn't print a color covers, and we were at the Miss Portland Diner in Portland. So I just had him turn around on his stool. We took a picture of him sitting on the stool at the Miss Portland and ran it on the cover. But the title is so good. It's it's our biggest selling book ever. Uh, we sold well over 30,000 copies of that book uh, since it came out in the early 2000s. And we did another one with John. John um, has been a great storyteller. If you know main storytelling history, he performed with um, Kendall Morse and, and uh, all those guys, Tim Sample and Marshall Dodge, and over the years. And he wrote another book, so he's, he's been great for us. And he's one of the very funny guys. <laughs> We've been publishing three books with him. We'll have a new one coming out. It's a name, a month or so, which is. I bet audio on all of a sudden. Hang on one second. We've got really um, fading audio on you. Not sure what just happened. Say again. Um, yeah, I said we have, there we go. Three books with we've done three yeah. books with him, and yeah. we have a fourth one coming out in, in, in a little bit called "What's in the Name," which is a story of every town name in Maine. Oh, but he's no. been great. <laughs> is it funny? <laughs> is it going to be funny, or is it serious? Well, it's true, but he'll have, he'll have some <laughs> uh, he'll have some other stuff in there too. <laughs> I, yeah, I appreciated that with him. It was like, okay, you learn about Maine, and you get to laugh at the same time. And it was, yeah, but those are. I, I love, I love the books. And what do you think it takes to be? What classifies you as a storyteller? That's always fascinated me because he really is one. And you're like, okay, so what? What's the description of that person? What? What's that mean? Educate me a well, little bit. Can be anybody. Uh, everybody. Maine has a huge history of amateur storytellers and because it grew up in the culture around the logging camps, around the fish wharves, around the country store. That's sort of the history of it. People told these stories, these tall tales, these, these yarns or whatever. And eventually in the 1950s, Marshall Dodge and Bob Bryan, who formed a duo called Bert and I, started recording them and making them popular. And they're the godfathers of storytelling in Maine. So from there, people like, again, Tim Sample, uh, Kendall Morse, Susan Poulin have taken that, and they take elements of Maine. They take elements of truth. They take elements of fiction and myth and tall tales and and tell them on stage. Uh, The old way was a very dry uh, Maine way with no one punchline. That was it. It's changed over the years and then developed, but really just taking that sort of the stories about Maine and just telling them in, in a way on stage. Do you on stage? Okay. Do you consider yourself a storyteller at all? Well, I'm a storyteller in the journalistic sense of the, of the sense. I mean, my stories as a writer were always based on being a storyteller, not a reporter, and. And the editing I do, we're looking for stories. One of our mottos for Island Port Press is we tell stories. Um, so we like that, the emotion, the authenticity, which you get only get from storytelling, not just from you know, dry facts or opinion or, or that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So I think we're a storytelling company, and that's sort of how I gauge my books. If there's a good story there, we'll probably try to tell it. Awesome. Let's talk about the children's books a little bit. Um, the children's book world is extraordinarily competitive <laughs> and um, seems to be quite like um, 
it's interesting what makes a great children's book and you've got some <laughs> and do you want to talk about that children's books are just my favorite one that's that's what I did as Mrs. Maine I, I toured around the state of Maine and did story times for kids in all the schools and made chocolate chip cookies and all that so I just love children's books they're, they're like a special place in my heart for children's books and boy have you got some neat children's book authors oh I love them well thanks yeah, we've been developing that for a while, and we had an editor for many years, Melissa Kim, who was very good at identifying children's books and children's stories, and more importantly, probably the illustrators, which really bring the books to life. The art of finding a good children's story is it's, there's no science to that. It's you know you're trying to find a cadence and a, and a rhythm and a story that works. You're looking for a story that has ideas that can be illustrated, which is not always the case. We get we get more children's books than any other genre. Uh, okay. And you know, if you, you read through it, sometimes like, well, interesting story, but there's no art possibilities here. Or it's been done, you know, over and over again or or or, or what have you. It's 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 tough. Uh, we've been lucky we we printed all the doll of a lot of the doll dip car books and she was a famous artist. Um, illustrator from Maine, grew up in New York, but lived in Maine most of her life. And we've done those and right up through, you know, Lynn Plourd books and Astrid Shekels has illustrated our books. And for kids' books, we approach the same way we do our adult books. There has to be some ties to Maine or New England. We call it Maine or New England sensibilities. And there has to be a good story. Um, we do break some rules. You know, there's a common rule today that kids' books must be less than 800 words. Uh, and we don't do that. We say if it's a good story, we can go beyond that. You know, the bookstores and libraries don't always like it. Uh, but that's sort of what we can do as a small company too. Uh, but the kids' books have held up better than a lot of genres because they're still given as gifts. You can still sell them in gift shops and you know, nice places of Camden and the old port that want a hardcover, beautiful illustrated book, and they'll buy it and give it to, give it as a gift. So that genre has held up, I think, as well as any genre in the past 20 years, and I think it'll keep going. People still want to read to their kids. They still want to have a bedtime story, and there's still something magical about about a kid's book. Yeah. I agree. You know, the the one thing that doesn't translate well for me with kids' books is um, the the electronic version of it. <laughs> I just can't. I don't know yeah, what my problem yeah, we don't, is. None of our books are electronic. We don't, I mean, none <laughs> of our kids' books are, are available. You just can't get the format. It's different. The size is not there. You know, we try to create these sort of cinematic storyboards and flow to our books that gets lost. Uh, if you're doing an ebook for kids' book, uh, I thought, and as storytellers, this is sort of a tangent, but it, some of those ebooks where you're pressing buttons and you're looking at things swirl around and you listen to voices tell you things, to me, in many ways, that's more of an activity book than a storybook, and you lose the sense of what the writer wanted to say, you lose the flow of the book and as, as it was meant to be. So, I mean, those are great, but for us, it's sort of is not what we want to do because we think it's sort of it's, it's an activity. It's not a storybook. So we have done none of those. And our art, art is big, so it doesn't translate anyway to an iPad screen. So we have not done that. Now other people do, but we probably yeah, will I never do of, that, I think. I have one of mine on Kindle, and I'm like, oh, this just isn't the same. I can't figure out why, <laughs> but whatever. <laughs> people are like, I'll buy it. I'm like, no, don't. Hang on. I'll hand you the book. It's terrible, <laughs> but it's true. <laughs> So it yeah, I, I, yeah it's true. I completely get it. Yeah, no, it it just doesn't. It, kids' books just I don't know. <sighs> yeah, but also, I like your idea also, though. It, it, also, the electronic yeah. version. You're talking about reading stories at bedtime. I mean, there's still something I think to be said for <laughs> mom, dad, phone. or anybody <laughs> reading the um, reading the story and making that connection versus watching the child press buttons, listen to voices and move things around with their fingers. It's a different experience. And to, to date, we still haven't lost, I think, that desire for people, parents and caregivers to want to experience that with their children 
I think that's what's kept it going as well. Yeah. And, and you gave it three things. Mine doesn't talk. You can't press buttons and you can't do anything. You can just basically scroll. <laughs> <laughs> that's even worse. Right. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, no, that, that was the one. I was curious about that. Um, do the other do the other books like John McDonald's book and so forth, do you put those in electronic format or do you keep everything in print? No, all of our fiction books are available as eBooks, Kindle okay. or whatever format you use. Uh, and John McDonald's books are most of our, most of our adult books are, if it's heavily yeah. illustrated or fact-based, no, but everything else is because there is a market. It's not a big market for us. But there is a there is people, especially our demographic, as you can imagine, is is skews older, and so one thing that those electronic books do for older readers is you can't blow up the text size easily. So you know for eyesight or whatever, it's it's good that way. And we have travelers, so I'm not against ebooks. I just we don't do them for kids' books. No, I'm I not a <laughs> Do you have a new book coming out? Is that or is it out already? You personally. Island Port Press? I I read, um, no, you personally. I thought I read that no, you've got... No, I'm, I'm updating Hauling the Hand. Uh, okay. For, for our 20th anniversary, so we'll update that and reissue that. It's out, of, it's out of stock right now, out of print, so we'll do that one. And oh, for next year, late next year, I'm doing a book on Maine, Maine speak, Maine accents, Maine sayings, Maine, you know, that kind of stuff. So yeah, it's coming out next year. That is needed. That's a way to that should be that should be given out when you move here. Like, what did you just say? Okay, hang on, somebody yes. look that up. Exactly. Um, <laughs> that's funny. That's accurate. Um, oh, super funny. And humor you, humor is a big part of our. We do very well with humor in our, in our company too. It's sort of, we have a lot of humor books, and so that's good. We keep keep that. People still want to laugh too. They want to read to their kids and they want to laugh. So we try to supply that. <laughs> no, you you got it. Twentieth um, anniversary. Okay, so take me back a little bit. You published your book on your own. Let's be that person for a minute, because there are a ton of people out there right now publishing their own books. Um, right. Especially, you know, with you know, a lot of people are like, okay, I'm going to self-publish this because my stack of rejections is three feet high or whatever it right. is. Um, or they want control of it. There's a ton of different reasons why people self-publish books. Why did right. you? And can you take us down that path of like, is it a bad thing to publish your own book? Do you have to have a publisher these days? What's what's the landscape and pulse of the whole publishing industry that's, right now? That's a pretty intense discussion. <laughs> there are people yeah, who are I very know. strongly committed to both sides of that argument. Uh, well, I didn't really... I self-published, but I was a journalist. I was a reporter for a dozen years, and I wanted to start my own company. So I self-published the book, Hauling by Hand, in an attempt to learn the whole the business. So we learned how to create the book, design the book, and we started setting up our distribution system at the same time. Uh, so we learned the book really to start the company. That's one way to do it. And then we published two, three, four successfully more books. Uh, you can People self-publish, and it can be – a great way to go. Uh, I think people underestimate several things, especially distribution. The hardest part of selling a book is distribution, getting into the bookstores, getting in the gift shops. Uh, they, it's, a hard, it's a hard go. You have to have national distributors. Uh, big stores won't take your book unless you're with a national distributor. Uh, some small bookstores don't want to take your book unless it's on consignment. They're not going to track it for you when it sells out. So it's a lot of work to move your book around. If you're a star and you have that a radio platform or a TV show and you want to sell your book just online, that's one way to go about it. But it's, it's a lot of work. I, people often come to me, they've self-published, they've sold a few books, and they recognize how hard it is. And they will come to me and say, can you sell my book for me? Well, we don't usually do that, so that's out. Now, there is a new way. It's hybrid publishing, which is sort of self-publishing in which you join a a publisher who has a built-in distribution system. They sell it. You have to pay for it, but you're joining somebody who's selling your book into bookstores. That's, a, that's, that's probably it's the fastest-growing 
a way of doing it. But but there's just so many. I mean, you can imagine your store in Maine. I don't know how many titles you have, 15,000, 50,000 titles or whatever. But, but I think it was well over 1 million self-published books last year. So there's so much noise you're trying to break through. You only have so much time, and people don't know your publishing company. If they don't know your, who you are, you know, getting the, convincing them to sell your book and take your book and occupy space on their shelves is tough. It is a tough sell. And, uh, and books, bookstores are spread all over the place. There's nowhere near as many as there used to be. Maine, since I started, we lost 50% of our bookstores. Uh, so we've had to branch into gift shops, and that's even more. You get a, they're even more targeted. They sell less broad selections of books, so it's it's tough. Now, not to discourage anybody, if you have a, if you have a book, there are many great success stories from self-published books. Um, some people use self-published books as a way to get the next book published, you know, things like that. So you can imagine with technology as many ways as possible to to produce a book now. Um, which is sort of when I got in, the revolution was starting with the Macintosh computer and programs like uh, InDesign is now. Uh, Quark Express was the old one. Um, so you can do it. You didn't need the heavy presses and all the work and costs that went into books in the old days. So the Macintosh and the, and the desktop revolution brought publishing to the masses. And then sort of the changes in bookstores and online selling is sort of even more brought it down to, to the masses. And it's going to stay that way. It'll never change at this point. It'll just grow bigger. And, but again, the number of books, it's just, it's just overwhelming how many books are out there. So you have to cut through that. I think some people don't do – yeah, a lot, a lot of noise. noise. If, you, if you're writing right, a yeah. book, some, people don't do the distribution model. They check that out. But they also have to see if their book is different. If, if it's the 50th book on the exact same topic, you know, even if it's a great book, it's not going to get out there. So they have to do that kind of homework as well. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. And you're, the one thing I noticed about you, too, is you're not a naysayer. You don't say, oh, no, you can never do that, and why would you do that, and you know, all that stuff. Um, I have, I, in my experience with you, you are not like that. And, but I think no. a lot of people are. I do. I think a lot of people bump bump into that. I think many people are committed to their own way of doing things, and you know that's the way it should be. (laughs) No, I mean I did that. I mean we 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 were early publisher of of a small publisher, and I just we published the book, and I just drove up and down the coast of Maine, New Hampshire, walking into bookstores, saying, "Hey, we have books. Would you sell them?" So it was sort of a long shot. Yeah. I mean. The, our first book we published was about an island of 50 people. So once I sold those 50 books, <laughs> we had to find somebody else to buy them. So, you Made know, yourself a cake, huh? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's awesome. So, and, so and, okay, so now. The other thing about, the other thing about those changes is it's changing. You can't be committed to one way anymore because, you know, as in college at Syracuse, um, you know, we worked on five-year plans for businesses or plans. It is changing so fast; it's unrecognizable every three years. You just don't know. So to be committed to one way, you're going to be extinct in two years. I mean, who, you know, who saw Apple Music wiping out the CD industry so fast? Netflix wiping out Blockbuster so fast. You just don't know. So you better, you better be open-minded. You're going to be dead. Yeah, no, I agree. That, that's the other thing too. Like even uh, even with websites, websites have changed so much that you can tell when you're on a on a website that was designed five years ago or ten years ago or whatever it is. I mean, that some of them are timeless, but some of them you're like, ooh, okay, the technology's changed <laughs> for this for this. And so, I mean, it's it's technology has really really changed the landscape of of our lives for sure. Um, in a number of ways. So, yeah, it, well, thank you for that. Cause I thought we would get, I thought we well, would get some well, listeners. Go ahead. Talking well, about even, publishing. Even do what you're doing. I mean, I, I went to school, started out as radio broadcasting before I became a writer. So I, yeah. to, do so, to do something like this, you know, we'd had to have a studio, you know, uh-huh. $100,000 worth of equipment. We'd have to have a producer, an engineer, you know, and, and you're doing it from your home on the phone. So yeah. the revolution 
30 years is stunning just to do this. Yes. Yeah, and, um, you know, it was really interesting, too, because I started this radio show a while ago now, and it was it was a, just a, you know, here I am talking on the phone kind of thing. <laughs> my, my 15-year-old was exactly. like, let me set you up. And and he just redid our equipment. And it's like, oh, okay, <laughs> there's a better <laughs> web camera and a microphone and all, you know, it's a little bit better. But, you know, what you can do from your house, and, again, it extracts the – concept of super picky audio and perfection you know and all these things you know because I will sneeze on the radio I will cough I will mess up my sentence and and I think that's Mm -hmm. sort of the beauty of it um because that's just a little bit more real life but it it helps you achieve achieve what you're trying to do and not have to be so darn perfect (laughs) doing right we've broken down that wall I mean the old days of radio was very formal, and we even talking to a producer and engineer, you wouldn't do that. You kept this illusion um, going of, of perfection, like you say. Now, with, with I don't know, with podcasts and everything else going on, it's it's changed dramatically. Yeah, changed I, I struggled to get over myself with TV because I'm I'm a radio news person as well, more of a like the TV anchor side of things, and. Um, so when I see YouTube or people in their cars with their seatbelts on, taping videos, you know, all this stuff, I'm like, oh, <laughs> <Right. laughs> yes. So yes, well, I'm more of like, where's my light kit, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. Well, but, um, we're in our 50s, so we are old school when it comes to media. <laughs> I am very old school when it comes to media, yeah. but I recognize the change. I mean, just in my lifetime, for example, I was lived on this island. We had no phones off that island until I was 17 years old. Oh, you couldn't call oh off God. to anybody else. And now my parents, I can, I can videotape when I was in high school. My daughter had a swim meet. I can videotape and transmit it to them to watch live if I wanted to you know, on yeah. that same island. So it's, a, it's that much of a revolution. Yeah. When I, when I do a YouTube video, I feel like I need to flash a Chiron across the bottom that goes, I am 50. <laughs> Give me a break. <laughs> Exactly. Leave me alone. And leave it alone. <laughs> There's a wrinkle. Don't worry about it. Oh, so funny. <laughs> um, but yeah. Anyway. Okay. So let's talk about. What do you want to talk about? Do you want to talk about um, other authors? Do you want to? Um, I love your magazine too. I wanted to touch on that. I think that was neat. Opening up the Press Herald and seeing your magazine in there. That's a lot of work. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, that, that is a lot <laughs> of work. Calling you up, going, did you need some help? I was going to help you. I'm like, he looks like he might need help. Yeah, that is a lot of work. Oh, my God. You know, the media, the magazine business is really struggling in the world. Sports Illustrated just laid off massive amounts I stopped my magazine, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, we wanted to develop a magazine that told stories like our books, and it's so tough to get media attention now because of, you know, reduced staffing. Uh, and all that stuff that we're trying to get the word out about our books and also tell stories and help mine for other books we could get. So we, we get these 12 issues. We're deciding what to do with it right now. Um, we hope it continues, but it, it's been great. It was, it was fun to get back into the media world too, you know, sort of oh, that yeah. more deadline oriented. I had to go from daily newspapers deadline <laughs> to doing books. You're looking out two years. You're like, holy smokes, <laughs> you're planning for two years <laughs> opposed to Sunday. Which is oh. the newspapers were. Can we talk about so, that for a minute? Can we? Oh, please! Okay. That is such a good point because people think like when they turn in a manuscript, it's um, going to be out in the next month. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> that's. Uh, I was stunned. I did not know that when I tur- when I became an author with Hay House, I had no clue. So that was my learning curve. It it was not the. No offense to Hay House or anything, because but that you know the the process is longer than you'd think, and the editing and, and all the stuff. Touch on that because people might not know that. Well, well, on the children's book side, you know you have to give. If you're doing real illustrations with a real artist, you have to give them a year. It's, it's really 32. It's a 32 page book. It could sometimes be 32 original pieces of art they're creating. So there's a time there. It takes a year or 18 months to get from the storyboards and the sketches and, and all that to the final piece of work. And that is the creative process. And I think people 
we've gotten so technologically oriented we've forgotten the creative process and what it takes to be creative, and that's not always a rushed environment or as fast as possible or what have you. On the adult side, if you're doing a 400-page book, 400 pages or 500 pages, you know, yeah. you have to you have to you have to develop the arc, you have to develop the story, you have to go from beginning to end, you have to get the facts straight, uh, you have to be edited four or five times. You know, it takes a long time. So, <laughs> yeah, so you know, we do. So we will have the so we would typically have the first book come in. The editor will read it and say, "Okay, here's a broad content editor." We tell them, um, "Here's the broad vision of the book we see. Here's the vision you see. Work on this plot line. Find this information." And they'll go back and work for so many months, and then we edit it and we line edit it, which is you know polishing up the language, and then we do a final word edit on, yeah. on that side, which is even more fine tuning. Then it's go to a copy editor who then edits it for grammar and style and commas and all that stuff. Then it goes to the designer who has to take 500 pages and create the captions and the fonts and the chapter headings and the illustrations and the cut lines. And then after that's done, it goes to a proofreader who has to read everything and check for grammar and, and all that stuff. And then has to go to printer, which can take two months to print it. So it just takes a long time because it's a lot of work. People – I, I get frustrated as as a publisher and an author. You know, you have a seventeen ninety five say children's book. It's thirty two pages, hardcover, and people like, ah, oh, it's a lot of money. I'm like, this is a piece of art. It's seventeen dollars. <laughs> it's two Happy Meals. Come on. <laughs> and I think yeah. people don't necessarily appreciate, you know, the creative effort that goes into these these books and the amount of professionals involved in creating them. Oh. I think I'm not sure it's coming back, but I think we've lost that a little bit. Over the years, yeah, so, but yeah, it does take a long oh. time because it's now if we we could do four hundred page book, you know, I don't know, say fifty eighty thousand word book, you know, we go through it and through it, and you know, we're probably gonna miss a comma or a typo or something. You know, people will find that and go, "How could you be so sloppy to miss this typo on page one thirty six? The comma's gone. <laughs> That's what we get. Sorry. Yeah. No, I get it. Yeah, I. Uh, and anyway, no, it does take a long time. And to illustrate the point, too, like if you are going to self-publish, those are the steps you need to follow also, <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, a really good yeah. editor, a proofreader, or this a designer, you know, all those things. That's, you know, a really good self-published book follows that same process, don't you think? Right. Or hopefully. Oh, absolutely. You can, you can tell a self-published book that has skimped on one part, whether it's design, whether it's proofreading, you know, if it's a bad self-published book, you know, trying to save money, they push the margins out so that the words go all the way to the edges of the pages, and that doesn't look good. So, yeah. my advice is, yeah. if you're going to self-publish, you know, set, set a budget and recognize what you need to do to create a good book. There's so many books out there that if it's poor design, it's already a barrier to buying that book. So you've already built in failure if you if you produce a poor book because of money. You know, that's just yeah. the way it is. And on the, and on the length time in self-publishing, it's also the marketplace. So if we're doing a national book, you know, our national distributor wants that book to sell, you know, six or eight months before it's released. So you're also building in at least six months just to get it in their hands before it can come out. Awesome. They can go to the meetings. They can go to the sales conferences. They can go to Barnes & Noble or wherever to sell the book. So it's also driven by – the sales end of things, why it takes a long time. We get a lot of that on Best Ever You because we put up a lot of books for people in a variety of industries. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see the books often before they come out. And we'll see them with the yep. typos or not for sale yet kind of things. <laughs> and, you know, it's your chance to give some feedback or um, an endorsement yeah. or whatever whatever people are wanting to send you that book yep. for. But that process can back, back it up a year too, or like what you're saying, like six to eight months in kind yep. of kind of getting a vibe to see whether the book's going to sell or not, or what needs to be adjusted to help it sell or, you know, all those things. And then um, totally agree with you. And then I was going to say, I have a, I have an independent, like a self-published children's book. The, the It's called Pinky Doodlebug that I did with mm-hmm. a local illustrator here, Sandra Waugh. And that was fascinating 
to sit because I really wanted the illustrations to be super pro. Mm -hmm. That was fascinating. And I've got all the artwork like in the corner here <laughs> of, of my office <laughs> to watch her create that. It did really take like a month to pick. Like it, it she was a real artist creating real illustrations yeah. for your real book takes right. a lot of time. Um, yeah, if you if you're doing a kids so book with a right, if you're doing a kids book um, with a character, you're doing all this artwork, but you also have to be so good to create so the the girl or the boy or whoever looks the same every page. Yeah. So you're not just doing images; you got to create characters that stay the same for 32 pages. So that takes time too. Otherwise, you go, well, she doesn't look the same on page two as page 16. You know, that's Part of a good yeah. illustrator and at the talent level to be able to tell a story and create a, a movie in print that does that. So it's it's yeah. it's, it's work and it's very talented Learning. people. <laughs> but you must now, love it. People, and yeah. What, a lot of people what? Well, I'm saying we talk about technology. One of the things that's hit the, um, the illustrating uh, kids books illustrators or graphic novelists these days uh, are video games. A lot of people are leaving the creation of books to be illustrators on, on Fortnite and those kind of video games. Really, people are going in that direction now, so it's, it's getting hard to even find people sometimes because there's more money yeah. in video games than children's books. Fortnite's pretty big. It's <laughs> funny. Um, did you know as a kid, like in – in the one room, <laughs> I guess the 10 other people or five or one or whatever it was at that yep. point. Oh my gosh. I can't even imagine. There were like, I thought 700 people was a lot for my high school. And um, until I got to the university of Iowa, which was just massive. So anyway, <laughs> right. um, yeah, I was like, Oh my gosh, there's so many people. Did you know, and my point in asking that was, do you, did you know you were going to do this? Like, did you know you were a writer way back in kindergarten or no. did did you have another career that you thought you were going to do, or? Yeah, well, tell I, me about the young you. I mean, I was a reader, and I would write stuff once in a while. But my entire goal from I don't know fourth grade through freshman year of college was to be a radio play-by-play -play baseball broadcaster. That was my dream, and my goal. I went to Syracuse University to the Newhouse School uh, to be a broadcaster because it was you know the best in the country. Uh, but as you may be able to tell in this podcast, when that first year, I realized, hmm, I talk pretty fast. I have kind of an accent, and these other guys are really, really good. <laughs> and I, and I, I, was a better, I was a better writer than I was a than I. Oh, well, we got I mean, my classmates. I got them on CBS and NFL and, and all that stuff, and so I went to work for the student newspaper and became a writer, and I found out quickly I was a much better writer than speaker. So um, that's that's the way I went. And you don't no, know that, I, but I still I still love radio and TV. I'm still a huge media nerd. But um, but for me, I was a better writer, better editor than ever was a play-by-play -play guy. I, can't, I think the same of myself, but I do this anyway. <laughs> I do. I just, <laughs> I do. I just am like, oh, I don't know. You know, when I was on TV, I'd always mispronounce names. Endless. There's uh, There are so many reels of me screwing up somebody's name. It's insane. <laughs> like, oh, no, I just did that. <laughs> I did it when I got here, too. Poor WGME. They're like, oh, no. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, better producer, director, writer type than probably on air. I could, I like commercials though. That's kind of where I found my love of the, like the, the media mix, like, like doing, you know, either writing commercials or being in them once in a while or whatever. That was kind of a nice blend for me. But I, what I love about podcasting, if you can put away perfection truly, <laughs> is that, right. you know, you really get to meet people in depth and it's a, you know, like every single one of your authors could come on the show. We could do an hour radio show with each one of them. And it would be yes. so much fun because you love to hear people and speak with them and hear their story. Um, and, yeah, you know, yeah, they've written, it's, yeah, if they've written two, 300 words on a subject, they know it. Like tonight I'm in, yeah. I'm in Bangor right now going to the, we have a launch event for a book called Evergreens, which is a story of a book of outdoor stories by John Holyoke, who's a, who's a longtime columnist for the Bangor daily news. 
Mm-hmm. And over the weekend, we released a book at the Snowmobile Show called Making Tracks by Matt Weber. He's a lobster fisherman on Monhegan, and he also helped start Monhegan Brewing Company, and he's a snowmobile addict, so he wrote a book on snowmobiling. You know, So those are two books this week, and now we have a book coming out talk about stories from Vermont, and this guy was faced with a decision with his stay with his girlfriend who was moving to Utah or stay in Vermont, so he got on his skis and skied this historic trail, the Catamount Trail, and you know, thought about it for the whole trip and wrote a book about it. So, you know, that's those are the kind of and all fascinating people with fascinating stories. So, yeah. keeps it interesting. It's perfect. Um, let's see. I wanted to ask you about your blog and your bookshop and so forth. Do you prefer when people go to um, buy a book that they go to your website? Do you care if they go to Amazon? Do you prefer them to go to a bookstore and request it? Do you have, is there any certain thing that (laughs) helps? No, for real. I mean, is there any certain thing that helps out a main business um, better than another? Because that's important. You know, think local. Right. Well, the the number one most important thing is to go buy the books, you know, (laughs) no matter how they buy them, buy them. Uh, you know, if, if there's a local bookstore place to sell books, we think people should support them. Unfortunately, with Maine, you know, a lot of places now. So if you're in um, Aroostook County or or uh, Washington County, there's one bookstore in those two counties combined. So we're in trading posts and we're in yarn shops uh, with our books, or you can buy on the website, or you can go to Amazon. Uh, I mean, the, the best way is to just you know support. Whatever channel sells books, and it'll, it'll get back to us. You know, we're not yeah. anti-Amazon. Amazon is a very important reseller of our Good. books. They carry every one of our books. So if you, you know, live in Allegash, Maine, and want to buy a book we published 20 years ago, probably the only place you can get it is either on our website or on um, Amazon. You know, if you live in downtown Bangor, you know, walk down to the Briar Patch and buy the book. If you're in Falmouth, you know, the book review. You know, Claire yeah. does a fantastic job at the book review over on Route One. Uh, Yarmouth has a great bookstore. You know, Bath has a great bookstore. So I think whatever, a buy the books. B if there's somebody who's making a living selling the books, buy it from them. Support them. Yeah. Uh, whatever you do, and then, you know, and, and it's for us. It's also important if since people find our books, but we don't have the money of, of the New York publisher or the promotions or the advertising. You know, if they go to a book and they don't find it, one of the most important things they can do is ask for it at the front desk because that lets people know they want to buy a book by by you or Mae Davidson, and they will either order it or if enough people ask them, they will start stalking it, and the books will be sold. So shouldn't, people shouldn't go in, not find it, and walk out. Ask at the front desk, do you have this book, and that gets the word going. Good idea. <laughs> I like that method. <laughs> Very good well, idea. Just, um, know, well, and yeah. people don't know bookstores don't oh, know cool. if you want a book if no one tells them they want the book. And again, what I said earlier, you know, there's a million books out there. So these the bookstore owners are trying to, you know, choose whatever fifty thousand books out of one million. You know, so it's tough. So if people let them know what they want, they buy it, they supply it. Yeah, yeah. What's a what is a good hearty number of sales for a book to like as a benchmark for like even a self-published book, like is 200 copies a good self-published book? Is it 10,000? I mean, obviously a million copies is just perfectly wonderful, but if you're not selling a million <laughs> copies, so you don't feel like a complete and total failure, what's a, what's a nice number? Well, I mean, it's di- different nationally. So nationally the book industry has sort of followed the movie industry, which means you have blockbusters, and everybody else. So the middle ground is sort of gone. So a million copies or, or hundreds. When I look at a book for our size, you know, the minimum we want to sell is 2,500. That's sort of the, the floor of what I look for. Do I think this book can sell 2,500 copies? Mostly because a you put a lot of work into that book. Um, oh, yeah. But you know, print runs. If you if you're doing printing, you know how that works. You know the unit costs go down the more you print, so you got to get to that number to make the the numbers work. Uh, you know, five thousand is a good number. We sold upwards of thirty thousand. 
Uh, and it also depends on the genre. Uh, fiction is very – adult fiction is a really hard sell in today's world if you're not one of the superstars. So that, you know, a couple thousand would be a good number. You know, one of our humor books, yeah, I'm looking for 5,000. Uh, the kids' books, we like to be closer to 10,000 um, because of the cost of color printing and hardcover and everything else. So, but, but the baseline is 2,500, and then the genre, you mix it up a little bit because you can't – people do print-on-demand, but you can't make a living doing print-on-demand. The quality is not good, and the unit costs are you know, five, six, seven bucks or whatever, whatever that is. Um, yeah. So it just doesn't work if you're trying to hold sale. So, yeah, it makes the book really so expensive that's what we try to too. Do. Like the, it makes the books ridiculously expensive at that point. If you're, you know uh, yeah, I mean, I mean hardcover, yeah. hard, hardcover books are now thirty, forty, fifty bucks. Yeah. Even on national level, so yeah. Yeah. So that's the numbers we look for. Yeah. And on your we, on your website. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> see, I can't well, see you part. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, there is no science to it. It's just all a gut feeling, which makes it exciting and also terrifying. You're just looking at a book and say, okay, like we're going to devote a year of our life to doing this book, and it might sell 100 copies. Okay, let's do it. Oh, yeah. you know, that's, that's I get it. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I totally understand. And, 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 you know, just because you're an author doesn't mean that there's no marketing. You know, it doesn't mean like, well, I did this book. Now you have fun marketing it. You know, there's a lot of work as the actual author that go involved with marketing yourself, marketing your books, making sure your own websites and your social media are all active and professional. I mean, there's a lot of things that go into success, I think, with books. And the, I think another thing that you, you um, have here on your website is really cool to help out the books, the authors, the, the publishing company and everything are events. So you can go onto your website, and so like for October, um, I can't believe October is almost over. Oh, scary. But you have actual, like you were talking about, events where people can come and meet the authors and buy the books, which I think is really neat. So it looks like all weekend you're – there's a like a gust – is that this weekend? No, that's – Last weekend. Last weekend, yeah. Now you're in Bangor, but then um, Booth Bay. Booth Bay is a great area. So you can meet Mae Davidson that's- this weekend at Booth Bay. Cool and she's that? wonderful. Is that at yeah. Sherman's? Yeah, it's a great okay. chain for Maine to use Sherman's books. And Booth Bay's cool. So yeah, go see May. Tell her I said hi. She's, she's <laughs> no, a nine-year-old. I might do that, actually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I think that'd be great. Yeah. Yeah, but on, right. on, on, that point, on that point you mentioned earlier, yes, one another thing that's changed in the book industry, especially at the New York level, they call them platforms. So they're looking for authors with platforms who can help sell their book. I mean, gone are the days of, you know, writing a book and then retreating to Vermont and never having to do anything. It's, <laughs> it's you got to be, you got to be hustling because all you're the so time. popular. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> we don't do interviews. <laughs> this is funny. Oh, well, that was the old yeah, way. no. Yeah, that's the old way. Yeah, I get it. All right. So with a minute left, is there anything that I haven't touched on that you wanted to be sure and cover before we uh, end our interview. Um, no, go to our website. Check us <laughs> out. www.islandportpress.com Go see May and Booth Bay. Yeah, if you're in Yarmouth, we have wonderful. a free library. Oh, yeah. Tell us about that before we go. That is neat. Yarmouth. Well, we have a, we have a replica of our logo, which is based on my grandmother's house, uh, at 317 Main in Yarmouth. And we have probably 60 books in there, so it's a little free library, part of that network. So people can go sample our books or drop off another book that's not ours that they think is great to share. And I love it. We, we, hope to do a few, we hope to do a few around the state, you know, get these few libraries. And this was based on our logo, which um, Shannon Butler, who works for us, her dad made it and created it and put little lobster boys on it and a little cat in the window and it's cool. It's perfect. Cool. Yeah, cats and books, they go together. <laughs> All right, Dean. <laughs> yes, Thank you for your time. I appreciate you being with us for the hour here on Best Ever You. It it, it matters a lot, and I, I just appreciate you being here. So thank you. Okay. Lots of thank wisdom. you. All right, everybody. Take care. Thank you for listening. That was Dean Lunt, the founder of Island Port Press. How lucky are we today to have him with us for a full hour So as I always say, thank you so much for listening to Best Ever You. This is completely grassroots. You all know that 
put absolutely no advertising dollars into this whatsoever. Um, and we keep it that way because um, you guys all embrace our guests when they come on here. You embrace their books, their their cause, whatever they're here to talk about. I love it. So best ever you go to islandportpress.com and um, let's, let's buy some books, right? All right. <laughs> Take care, everybody. Have a great day and visit us at besteveryou.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Best Ever You Show. Want more? Visit us at besteveryou.com. Be your best and keep it real. Confident, successful, caring, and beautiful every day with Best Ever You. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.